0: i listened to some paprika today oh yeah it was good you're
1: talking about the um, the expanse That's oh yeah i want to try watching the show again
0: we only get like a few episodes into the expanse. I was and then, so
1: mad at how different some things were from the books. Ah, uh, like, no, fuck this show.
0: I will not tolerate you and your creativity. I
1: remember, I was so mad that, that they were all perfectly waxed.
0: Oh and I yeah, was like,
1: you wouldn't have waxing on an ice hauler. <laughs> What's wrong with you people?
0: You, <laughs> you have to have give Hollywood its things.
1: Wands on ice haulers. Everyone's supposed to be dirty really piss me off
0: <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the duke and duchess podcast it's that kind of show
1: crack yourself a cold beverage and buckle up we're talking about republic of thieves by scott lynch today that's
0: right chapters 3 and 4 and their respective interludes
1: yes indeed i'm the duchess
0: i'm the duke
1: Why don't you tell them our spoiler policy?
0: Our spoiler policy is that we will not spoil anything past chapter four of the Republic of Thieves. Liz has read these books several times. I have never read them, so I don't know what's going to happen. It's kind of a conceit of our show. Kind of is. Something we stole blatantly from unspoiled. Unapologetically.
1: (laughs) We apologized.
0: No, I don't think I did. Oh. I told them I loved their podcast. It was great. And then I stole their format. <laughs> it's okay. They're doing. She, she's doing quite well for herself. I don't. I don't feel bad.
1: <laughs> so next up, we're going to read the interlude entitled "Striking Sparks," through and including Chapter Six. Yes. Mm-hmm. Things are moving along. Yeah. Things are moving along. I really enjoyed reading this section.
0: Yeah, it was an enjoyable section overall, especially the way it ended.
1: It ended on a little zinger of a surprise. Yeah. That was pretty exciting. Yeah.
0: And I had no clue. My predictive powers were quite poor.
1: So let's jump into this first interlude. Okay. It's called The Boy Who Chased Red Dresses. Mm. And in a nutshell, in this interlude, we have a flashback and we have chains pitting Locke against Sabatha in a basically a sneaking contest.
0: How come I never got to do sneaking contests? You when were I was a raised
1: kid? in an elder glass burrow by a kindly but garrulous old thief. <sighs> I mean, there's ups and downs to every childhood.
0: I really wanted like more sneaking games when I was a kid. It's
1: where our youngest gets it from.
0: Yeah, like I didn't get to do enough of it.
1: So before that happens, we have a really kind of poignant little scene where Locke and Chains come to terms with Locke's anger over being tricked. And in the last interlude that we read, Chains had run sort of a test on Locke to see if he would be able to sacrifice Sabatha if it meant saving the team. And he did do that, but he was really, really ticked off, not only at the emotional impact of thinking Sabatha was going to die, but also basically being set up with a task that he couldn't win and it really ticked him off.
0: He handled it like a real (laughs) 15-year-old. Right. But he's Or a
1: seven-year-old, exactly. (laughs) So Locke and Chains, apparently Locke has sort of slumped around the barrow for a while and moped and Chains finally takes him up and kind of has a little talk with him. And I really enjoyed this scene. It really kind of solidified for me what I like about these characters and that's the fact that they communicate. They like talk about their feelings. And for me, that's something that's frustrating in a lot of fantasy novels. We can have really well-written characters, but the relationships are often lacking. Or there's there's this kind of commonly used device where characters will miscommunicate just to sort of build tension in the plot. Yeah. And it's really frustrating to me when that happens.
0: Yeah, agreed. And that's what you thought about. It. You know what I thought about this week? What's that? I thought about that. In the real world, a child who's abandoned at five gets horribly abused, bounced around, has catastrophic head injuries, has a high likelihood of growing up to be a serial killer. Okay. That's what I thought about this week.
1: All right. Well, so.
0: And then I bought helmets for all of our children.
1: God, the littlest one got bashed in the head a couple of times today, too. Three times today. Three times. Oh, she's a tough cookie youngest of four, they're tough cookies. Well, and Locke's a tough cookie too. Because after being kind of taken up to the roof, and and he says to Chains, I know life's not fair, but I thought you were. And Chains then kind of realizes that, oh, hey, Locke has some feelings for Sabatha. And he apologizes to him. And he says, but, you know, basically, we're going to be living together for a long time. And you're going to need to be able to communicate And you're going to need to be able to talk about your feelings. And so, once again, that's just not something that you see in fantasy novels a whole lot. You know, a parent figure talking about, like, emotional skills with kids. Like, you know, you almost never see that in this genre. You have them like, here, son, let me teach my papa taught me how to shoot an arrow and (laughs) chop the wood and fight a dragon. But, you know, you don't have these kind of conversations between families in this genre a whole lot. So I really liked it. And I think it's, it shows the root of what I really like about these characters that I keep saying is that how they, they come up with conflicts, but they talk about them, you know, and they don't, they don't like avoid their own defects. Yeah. They're willing to admit and grow as people. And as a result, those defects that these characters have don't really ever feel tacked on Or like they're extraneously just there to advance the conflict.
0: No, and I would also say that the characters where you see that are the ones to me that are the most real. Absolutely. That's why I think Chains is one of the best characters in the novel. Alongside Locke and John and Bug and even Callow and Galdo, you see this but i don't think to the same degree but but all the characters who sort of share that are the ones that are the the most real to me. Uh, you know, who's the last other character in a fantasy novel we see we've seen share his display some fatherly advice along the lines of how to share emotions and and uh communicate? Uh, Ned know. Stark.
1: Ned Stark, you're right. Chains definitely has some Ned Stark vibes. I mean, more like dirty old man version of Ned Stark. <laughs> Being a crook in the basement.
0: Well, I'm just saying it's, it, it didn't end well for poor old Ned's head.
1: <laughs> it truly didn't. I think, And I like to think that Chains died of good old age with a beer in his hand, surrounded by his children, that kind of thing. That's the perception I have.
0: I'd like to think that.
1: So, back to this interlude. After Chains and Locke kind of get to a place where they're okay with each other, we have a scene where Chains sets up this contest. He pulls all the kids together, and right after he's told Locke that, oh, hey, you need to be better about handling yourself when you have a conflict, he tells the kids that they don't have enough conflict. Yeah. They don't fight enough, and he's going to set them up against each other to see how well they do in a contest. Yeah. Because they're getting too good at just duping regular people. So he sets Locke and Sabathah up on this little test, basically where Sabathah is to walk the length of a square holding a basket with four balls of silk. And Locke's job is to sneak up on her and get close enough to see what color those balls are without letting Sabathah see how many buttons he has on his waistcoat. And this just so sounds like something you would make our kids do. Right. (laughs) It's just so (laughs) random and arbitrary. (laughs) I remember we were getting ready to, to go on vacation and we were they were still pretty young. We were taking them on a plane for one of the first times and we were nervous about whether they were going to go to sleep or not. And so you paid them a quarter for every lap they oh. ran around the house. Remember? We yeah. ran out of quarters. Yeah. <laughs> Those kids can run some laps. We're There's properly cash motivated. In it. <laughs> anyway, sorry, sidebar. The best line, I think, of this entire chapter that I loved is when Chains tells them that they are going to be pitched against each other. Callow says, I volunteer to be to hit Sabatha and I volunteer to be hit by Locke. Yeah. (laughs) You miss that that comic relief of those characters. Yeah. When they're not around anymore. Anyway, Sabatha heads off. She's got a plan right away. Locke has no idea. He's just kind of like, well, whatever will happen will happen. And they have the contest. And Sabatha's clever plan involved getting two decoy girls wearing the same dress, carrying the same basket. So I love this because for me, I'm like, oh, that's really clever. Yeah. And nothing disappoints me more in a novel when a character has been built up as being really clever, but then they don't actually do anything really clever. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, I know. Like, it's like that, that tell, but they don't show me. See episode six. (laughs) Yes, indeed.
0: I think it was six where we started to really go down that road.
1: Right. Oh, yes. The girl who's just so smart, but she doesn't actually say anything smart. Everyone's just like, ooh. Anyway, Sabbath has been built up for three novels now about how smart she is, how clever she was, how charming and good at everything. So it was nice to be like, oh, hey, she actually, that's pretty smart.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And she almost is able to win, but Locke in a moment of desperation as these three girls are converging on him to see how many buttons he has, decides to pretend to start being sick and he bribes a guard to carry him out of the situation and Sabatha at that point ditches the contest because she thinks he's really in trouble and she comes over and also bribes the guard at which point then Chains comes over also bribes the guard to get them all away and he declares it a draw but it's something very important happens in that Locke realizes that Sabatha cares about him.
0: Yeah, as a person. Yeah, it was interesting to me to see how Sabatha had this really clever, cunning plan that took you know a great deal of forethought and pulling together a bunch of resources in a short period of time, and Locke just went out there and just you know improvised because that's what he does, you know, and with no plan and in a moment of desperation, you know, he pulls something off. But it was Sabatha's soft spot for Locke that ultimately costs her the chance to win the contest. So we see at the at the end of this section, we see that they're going to be in a contest again. And obviously, we'll talk about that in more detail when we get there.
1: So then we have an in, what's called an intersect. So I thought this was really interesting because we have like a little two-page segment where we are seeing some mind speak between two of the Bonds Magi.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and of course, at this point, we don't know who it is at this point. And this is just sort of a a different thing that we haven't seen to this point in these novels. We've, you know, we've even seen in the last book where we had, I can't remember the name of the character's names, but we had Rodenoff and the other guy having their little one-off and we got to learn about We got to learn about some subterfuge before it actually played out. Now we've we've got it coming across again, but it's being chosen to be displayed in a different way. And we think we figure out who the person is with the four rings, but we don't know who the other person is on the other side of the conversation.
1: And I love the first line of this section. It starts out saying, in the no time, no space of thought, conspiracy could have no witnesses. Ah. I just love that line. That's cool. So yes, it's it's described as being an old man with four rings uh huh, who is plotting some kind of conspiracy against patients. His co-conspirator asks whether he could just make sure that Locke dies, because that would be convenient. Old man four ring, it doesn't want to do that. He's afraid of patients. And he also says she didn't choose Lamora just to boil your blood. There's something about him you don't understand yet. And whatever this something is, it's deeper than the five-year game and it's too sensitive to even be talked about in mind to speak. Mm. So, I don't know, what was your take on that? He's shrugging at me. I thought you'd have some wild theory for me.
0: No, not about that.
1: (laughs) Not about that? No, I mean, I
0: I feel like there's all kinds of things we don't really know about Lamora. We know he has some sort of secret name, you know, but I I don't feel like there's enough evidence to be able to really draw any conclusions beyond wild-ass guesses. Right. You know, so, I mean, it seems to me that it's the Falconer talking to Coldmarrow.
1: Hmm. Very good speculation. All right. Chapter three is called Blood and Breath and Water. And in this chapter, basically, Patience and her associates heal lock very unpleasantly. And they lay out the details of their assignment and they answer some questions. So they start getting on a boat. Another boat. There's only a little talk of tacking. Yeah. <laughs> so we meet one of Patience's associates. His name is Coldmarrow. Damn, why? Where do they get these good nicknames? He's
0: got some great names. Like, Man. You know,
1: Scott Lynch, if you're listening, would you give me a nickname? <laughs> I've wanted a nickname my entire life. Always wait wanted a minute, one. Wait a minute.
0: I'm channeling something. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I f- I'm being spoken to. <laughs> it's Scott Lynch. He's He's coming to me. And I... Monkey Pants. <laughs> That's your nickname. Your new nickname is Monkey Pants.
1: Try again, Scott Lynch.
0: If it was Scott Lynch, you can never tell in the no time, no whatever of thoughts, talk, speak, my
1: So anyway, Cold Marrow.
0: Now listen. So we know there's somebody who is you know conspiring and is involved with patients and then we instantly meet an old man with four rings right and his name is cold marrow right it's almost mm. bone chilling i would say it's a little on the nose but it's full of cartilage
1: he also has one eye and he thinks tacking is quaint.
0: Oh, one eye. <laughs> I've got a one eye, too.
1: I see what you did there. That's a penis joke. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm I'm with you.
0: I have genitalia.
1: <laughs> God. <laughs> so they're on this boat. Sidebar. Their old cat shows
0: up. It's a... Um, weirdly. Yeah that, yeah, that was cool. So yeah, they're on this boat. It's a... It's a Tesla model.
1: (laughs) Runs on a private wind.
0: Yeah, it does. And there was some poor unfortunate lady on a bike who was cutting across the ocean and it just ran her down. (laughs) It's probably too soon to make that joke. Uh,
1: It's probably too soon. Yeah. But there's a big deal made of the fact that these Bonds Magi are powerful enough to create weather. That's a new talent that i'm not sure we knew that they had although i think we saw the falconer raise fog but they're Mm. they're able to control the weather enough that the boat will just go where they want it to
0: yeah and it doesn't seem to really take a whole lot of effort on their part to do it
1: right and they they go about preparing for the ritual and it's kind of a protracted preparation and we have the old magic is going on trope of whatever you see Whatever happens, you must not interfere, you know.
0: Which makes you beg the question, why allow him to observe?
1: You know what? There's many questions we could beg, but we just need to...
0: Because you need a camera in the room. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So there's lots of prepping. There's lots of, like, cutting of hair and making effigies
0: and all of that. They painted his toenails the colors of the rainbow.
1: So basically...
0: He's a pretty little girl, pretty little girl. Shave him.
1: Basically, what they're going to do is move the poison's malignant power to the effigy that they have made. They made a momet of him. Yeah. Basically. And it's hella awful. But we finally get to see some fucking magic. Am yeah, I right?
0: Absolutely. It was
1: pretty cool. This scene was pretty cool where they actually do the ritual. They have like this this sort of quick silver like substance called mm-hmm. dream steel it's all over him in this pattern there's all this like dream steel like, dream St- yeah <laughs> that was my eighth grade shred metal band
0: uh, see that's my Yours sue yeah it was my it was my mid mid 90s new metal fusion band yeah. math rock yeah <laughs>
1: But I really liked this scene. It was creepy, um it had like all the horror flick sort of flourishes, you know, it had lots of zoom shots and cantered yeah. angles and the
0: sacrifice to virgin yeah
1: there was there was shadows, there was nausea, there was like vomiting and bloody noses and the sound of marrow bones cracking yeah. but it was it was all very eerie, and I, for me it was really well done. yeah a
0: couple of teenagers were smoking pot by the lake. they got killed
1: black. Fucking candle flames. When your candle burns black, that's how you know there's some serious Show mojo. It's the most, this is the most metal of, Listen, of all the scenes in the book we've read so far. In
0: my mind, Patience was wearing a chain metal bra. <laughs>
1: Absolutely.
0: Chain metal bikini. Because, you know.
1: Under her robes, I'm sure she was. Of course
0: she was. It's the only way you get that metal. <laughs>
1: So we go through this whole ritual. 20 more
0: pounds, I'm going to need a chain metal bikini, too.
1: I'll get you a chain metal bikini if you want one. You just have to ask. <laughs> Listeners, who would like to see Chad in a chain metal bikini?
0: This may have backfired.
1: Anyone?
0: <laughs> I could still edit Hit this out. Hit us up
1: on Twitter and Facebook, y'all.
0: I mean, I'm not gonna, but but I could. <laughs>
1: So we have this awesome sort of metal ritual. Then we get to see it from Locke's perspective, and it's even worse.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the part to me that stood out was the part that comes next. I hope I'm not jumping the gun here, but the part that comes next where he has his dream interaction with Bug. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't have thoughts on it. I just thought it was interesting.
1: It did. So no. Locke is laying there, he's in this terrible pain. The the poison is moving out of him like a burning snake or whatever. And he has a vision of Bug. Bug looks hella creepy. He's got black eyes. He's got a crossbow bolt stuck through his neck still. Yeah, yeah. And he tells Locke that he's stuck here he can't move on to the next place in the afterlife he says when you die your sins are engraved on your eyes and the when Locke looks closer his eyes are all black but he can see that it's lines of tiny it gives me goosebumps even talking about lines of tiny black script over his eyeballs they they engage in this sort of lock mini theological debate where Locke yeah. says no that's not what happens like I'm priest this is what this is what I was taught and uh, Bugs like well Okay, there's nothing left to do but see which one of us is right and you'll find out eventually and then Locke wakes up.
0: So it but it's a it's a weird sort of thing because I think the obvious question is and and we even get into it later is it a dream, some sort of weird psychological, you know, guilt trip that he's putting himself through or is it a real vision and is bug actually really communicating with him because it poses, I guess a couple of different questions. If you, if you take it that it's real and not some sort of weird, you know, manifestation of all of what the hell's going on in the trauma in his brain, but you take this to actually be bug communicating, then it, it could mean a couple of things. It could mean that, everything that Locke believes about the 13 gods is wrong, meaning that, or I guess further, I should say, that there there aren't gods, that this is just what happens. But the problem with that is that if it is just sort of this atheist, there is no God reality, then where would the metaphysical power come from for Bug to come back and talk to him? So that doesn't seem to really be a, A possibility. The other possibility is that the gods are real. There is some sort of metaphysical power out there, but they don't give a shit.
1: The classic watchmaker
0: scenario. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like that's interesting in light of one of the things that we've speculated on, which is that part of what makes Locke sort of unique is his relationship with the Crooked Warden, which gets him out of all kinds of crazy situations when he seems to put his faith in the Crooked Warden. And we we found, albeit sort of circumstantial, but lots of evidence for that. But I like that for the first time in this series of novels, we're getting some depth into these, you know, sort of cosmic mysteries of what's going on in this universe. So, so that that's why I said that this whole section with Bug was interesting to me.
1: Yeah, and there's this interesting theme emerging of justice versus mercy. And it's not the first time it's been touched on in these novels, but over this section we really see it becoming Prominent. You know, I don't think it's any coincidence that in the last interlude, in the interlude where Locke is chasing Sabatha through this square, mm-hmm. we're sort of briefly introduced to these priests of Morgante. And Morgante is the city father. He's sort of the antithesis of the unnamed 13th. Yeah. He's the god of order, hierarchies, and harsh consequences. And he's the patron of executioners, constables, and judges. Yeah, it makes sense. He sounds like a real dick, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> and He's luck. the
0: Joe Arpaio of the <laughs> gods. <laughs> right.
1: So the glimpse we have of his priests is they're basically whipping a prisoner, calling blood for rain. So they have this, whoever's serving his term, and you can go up and pay money, and for every coin they'll they'll whip this guy. So that's what Morgante is all about. So we have the god of, we're introduced to this and told a little bit more about this, god of order and and harsh consequences. And now we see Locke, practically on his deathbed, he's presented with a vision of his worst fear, that he somehow led his apprentice to an afterlife of torment and failed him as a priest. And I think it's really significant that we see Bug here and not Callow or Galdo or even Chains, because Bug is the one that he felt the most responsible for. Yeah. So, and then we follow the, all of that up with this flashback this interlude called Orphan's Moon, where we see, and we'll, we're will we going to see that this really continues in this interlude, where we get to see Locke and his brothers take the oath of joining. And we see this is where Locke gets made a priest of the unnamed 13th, or at least becomes an initiate. Yeah. So it's interesting. We kind of jump from this really creepy couple of scenes to all of a sudden back to an old interlude yeah it's almost a little jarring how you're kind of like you want to know what happens but you're back at this interlude with basically Locke having a sack over his head because you're being initiated into an order of course you have to have a sack over your head you have to be compelled to silence you have to have a secret handshake
0: what we call wednesday
1: exactly all that stuff's going on But we get to see Nazca again.
0: Yay! She's dead. Don't forget.
1: Thanks. And we kind of jump around a little bit here. We see that basically initiates of the 13th God only go to church once a year. So this one day a year, they all come in with their offerings. And they kind of try to one-up each other on how good their offerings were. Yeah. So Jean and Locke come up with this scheme involving a fake cake. Yeah. And they basically <laughs> bump into a guy on purpose and pretend to have like lost this really expensive cake and they guilt him into giving money to pay for the cake. So they're pretty pleased with themselves. But Sabbath, though, shows up and she has stolen three cudgels from the the yellow jackets. Yeah. I almost said the nice Watch. Not those guys. So, which is like, just blows everyone away yeah. with her. And she says that she's, she can't, she, she kind of wants to show off a little because she really, really wants to get picked to be a priest of the 13th. And once a year, there's an opportunity that someone might get picked. So we find that Locke has thought a lot about wanting to get picked as well, but he doesn't want to admit it. And Sabbatha talks about really wanting to be a priest because she wants to be the best. She wants to win it, you know, she's got this very competitive edge to her. So we go back into the initiation and this is where the theme we were talking about earlier really continues because during this, during this initiation, they have these actors come in as personifications of things that the thieves are going to have to turn their backs on. So there's a guy dressed as the son, the Lord and father of propriety and Mm -hmm. basically they have to say to this avatar of the sun, I'm turning my back on you and I accept your curse. So they accept the curse of the sun. They accept the curse of a woman representing justice. And it's interesting what this actress says. I mean, she's not like a hired actress. She's one of the priests, but she says all things I weigh, but gold pleases me dearest all names I read, but those with titles please me the best. So it's interesting, this very cynical view of justice versus mercy. Yeah, justice is something you pay for. Exactly. So they accept her curse as well. They accept the curse of the hired man who says, I wear the leash of better men. And lastly, they accept the curse of judgment. And it's interesting what he says too, because... This theme we've been talking about is judgment versus mercy. Mm-hmm. He says, I am mercy refused. I am expedience. I am a signature on a parchment. I am cheap. I am easy, and I am never satisfied. So they they accept the curse of all of these personifications. And it's so it's interesting that we see this right after we see Locke struggling with this vision, feeling like he's he was wrong, you know, that he he failed. This apprentice that he thought he had saved.
0: Well, and that this—if you—if you look at it kind of backwards—that this cold lack of mercy that we find in justice might continue into the afterworld.
1: Indeed. So that's going to be—that's going to be a major theme in this book, I think. Yeah. So at the end of this interlude, we see Locke being chosen as the priest of the 13th. And basically and what happens.
0: The looks from Sabbath. Oh, damn. Who Sister is, is pissed. Skinny little rat hood motherfucker.
1: So what did you think about Locke being chosen over Sabbath?
0: So I thought it was interesting that I felt like most of his reason for being there was because Sabbath was there. Not so much that he had really put a lot of time into it. He had thought about it. I mean, he expresses that it's something that he had weighed and thought about, but not that he had ever really made an opinion about it. And then we find him in the situation only because Sabbatha is there and he's just sort of caught up in her tide, you know? And so she kind of takes him wherever she goes, sort of in, in this scenario. And so he ends up standing beside her, and the priest of the 13th, are conferring amongst themselves. They don't really get any explicit guidance from the Crooked Warden, which they talk about. And then they decide to choose Locke, who has been with them for a relatively short period of time. I thought it was interesting that the last thing we hear from Sabatha going into this decision is essentially her saying what we heard Locke say in the last interlude, which is, I want to win. I want to be the best. You know, and we don't know a great deal about these religious institutions, not not to the depth that we, you know, that we do other things. But when's the last time you heard a priest of any religion say, I really want to be a priest because I want to be the best.
1: Right. And I think that's that's the main difference between the two of them.
0: Yeah. And so the Crooked Warden if if he does inspire the three priests, inspires them to choose Locke. And that again, contrasting with what we saw with Bug, that's another thing that leads me to believe that, albeit silently, there is some sort of influence you know going on from, from the gods. Because At the time, there would be no reason to lead you to believe that Locke was somehow the right choice to make, but it seems like it was.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting to look at the two in light of, obviously, Sabbath is the better thief, but what seems to be the most important to these orders is upholding their mandates. And so they have to look at, which of these two would be better at upholding the mandates of the 13th, which is that thieves prosper and the rich remember. Mm -hmm. And of the two, I mean, you have Sabatha, who is a meticulous planner and excellent at everything she does. But then you have Locke, who has just this unabated love of stealing and really a deep sense of justice as far as sticking it back to the rich and making sure that they don't get too comfortable where they're at. And Sabatha sort of doesn't have that. That we've really seen. That see. we've seen,
0: yeah. We haven't spent a lot of time with Sabatha, so we make these statements off of the little tiny bit that we know.
1: But it's interesting because we know of the time we've spent with Locke in the previous two novels, his piety is never in question. Yeah, never. He definitely believes in the 13th. He's He's devout. He's devoted to his faith.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So
1: in retrospect, we can see that he made a really good priest.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: So chapter four is called Across the Emethel. Basically, we start off with Locke not being poisoned anymore. So yay.
0: And glowy fish.
1: And glowy fish. Yeah. Right?
0: I like glowy fish.
1: This scene so reminded me of Matt Cawthon being healed from that bad mojo cursed ruby.
0: Oh, yeah. Do you remember that in Wheel of
1: Time? Yeah, yeah. And then afterwards, he was really, really hungry. But... For Matt Cawthon, it lasted for like three books, I think. He yeah. was really <laughs> it was really, like a major part of his character was eating three chickens at a time.
0: His emo phase was a lot longer. It was
1: long. It was long, but he got it out of the way early in but the series. But there were no glowy
0: fish, and I really like glowy fish.
1: Yeah, glowy fish are pretty cool.
0: That's That's kind of my jam.
1: So kind of back to what you were saying earlier is very similar to what John says to Locke when he tells him his vision about bug. Yeah. And Jean is basically like, dude, no. He says, We have a duty to accept on faith, but also a duty to weigh and judge. If the gods wanted credulous idiots for priests, why wouldn't they make you that way when you were chosen? He's basically or choose like, somebody
0: who was more of a credulous idiot to begin with.
1: Exactly. So he's basically like, dude, you're overthinking this.
0: I've had some weird ass dreams.
1: I've had some weird ass dreams.
0: You know. None of them have come real yet. So.
1: So then we get into the Q&A section of the book. Yeah. <laughs> Which can I say again, I just think it was so clever that um, Scott Lynch worked it in a previous part of the book where Locke makes part of his agreement that he gets to ask her questions about how things work. So that they can, now Patience has a reason that she has yeah. to sit down and kind of explain all this stuff How to do them. I
0: make this Q&A work? Right. Exactly. First it's like, how do I dump a shit ton of exposition? <laughs> exactly. You can have a Q&A. How do I make it seem like it's actually part of the story?
1: And you know what? It works for me. So, Patience comes out and uh, she's like, "All right, all right. Taking questions." <laughs> so the big question, the main question is, first question is, why do you take contracts? And the answer is basically to make money. Duh.
0: Cuz money is still useful.
1: And the the question behind that question, of course, is well, why don't you guys just take anything you want? And uh, I think Jean says, "You're scheming skull fucking bastards. Why don't you just why bother with all this rigmarole?"
0: Well, it's, it it's sort of interesting to me. We and we talked about this a little bit last time, but Jean and Locke are really going on their experience to define the Bonds Magi. They have, We hear, like, two stories from chains that are, like, ancient history, not a lot of perspective, third-hand, and then we have the experience with the Falconer. And, therefore, the rest of them are motherfucking bastards. Like, that's it. Without putting any possibility into the fact that maybe the guy that you encountered was just a huge asshole maybe he was just a huge prick now i'm not saying that we should you know consider them santa claus like but i am saying maybe hold your damn opinions until you have a little bit more evidence because right now we have one data point really
1: that's a good point I would counter that we don't really know what other stories they've heard about the Bonds Magi. True. We've had it related. The first story that they heard about them was the story of Theron obviously, Correct. where they rained fire down and destroyed an entire city instantaneously, pretty much, which is pretty drastic. But we, we don't know what other stories they've heard about them. They're pretty universally feared. We know that it's pretty much granted that you don't mess with them and Locke and John are probably some of the only people who ever have. So it it is interesting to see how adamantly rude they are to any bonds magi near them. Yeah. And in fact, when two bonds magi come down to try and help cold marrow and patients as they're healing Locke and they end up collapsing unconscious on the floor. And, um, John's like, are they okay? And, uh, Cold Marrow's like, they have names. And John's like, I don't want to know their names.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now, to be fair- What if
1: I call them Asshole 1 and Asshole 2?
0: To be fair, now that I think about it, there are some other data points that we have. We have what happened in the market in Telverar, which was badass, but also some cold shit. And they did everything they could at every turn to sabotage their their plans.
1: Well, not only that, but they're kind of indirectly responsible for them being poisoned.
0: Yeah, in correct. the first place. Yeah, correct. So there's a
1: couple data points. So
0: yeah, so there's a few data points.
1: Yeah. Kind of reason for them to think that the Bondsmanjai are a bunch of dicks, but, but it turns out that they aren't.
0: They're not unified.
1: Right, they're not as unified a block yeah. as previously
0: assumed. Yeah. Well, which, uh, thank God, because when you get a group of people who all act. The exact same way, (laughs) Aes (laughs) Sedai. It's really fucking boring.
1: (laughs) There were factions in the Aes Sedai. They had
0: like eight different
1: colors and stuff. But they
0: all acted the same goddamn way. Their
1: noses in the air, their arms crossed beneath their breasts. Sniffing. Sniffing. So then they get into something which we've speculated about in the past, which is... Why don't you guys just take anything you want? The way Locke puts it is, you're scheming skull-fucking bastards, basically. So why don't you just proclaim yourself emperor? Mm-hmm. And basically, Patience says, most of us find it starkly ludicrous that the height of all possible ambition for the ungifted must be to drape oneself in crowns and robes. So basically, we're too good for you. We're beyond the realm of...
0: Yeah, I mean, I actually find that a completely valid point it's sort of like if we found people in the world today who had some sort of weird incredibly powerful thing like that we would assume that their ambitions would lie in a lot of people would in like making money and if they came to us and they were like why would you assume that like that it's only to you guys that like money is the end-all be-all we have other ambitions and things that are more important to us and that would completely upset you know sort of the the whole their whole world in terms of what their priorities are and what they would want to pursue. So that argument makes sense to me.
1: Well, although it turns out that there is a schism among the mages over this very issue. And apparently there's a faction that want to become emperors basically feel like the ungifted can't rule themselves. They're a bunch of idiots. Look at them. They're cows. You know, we we need to get in there and take over the world.
0: Now listen, how many cows have you seen holding civil wars? Okay. Enslaving other cattle? It doesn't happen.
1: Just saying.
0: Think it's kind of an insult to cattle.
1: Who's the barnyard animal here? Right. Really? So we find out that this faction who wants to become king of the cows is not the one that Patience is part of. Yeah. Though her son the Falconer was very popular with them. We find out that this is the faction that's been wanting to mess with them and that patience allowed them to do that so that they could vent some of their frustration so that they wouldn't take it any further. The next question that Locke has for her is, if you're so moral and stuff, why do you still kill people? Yeah. (laughs) Basically. And the answer is, well, people still need to be reminded not to fuck with us.
0: Also, she's like, we never really claimed to be moral like we're not out here to be altruistic that's not what our goals are we simply aren't interested in dominating you for the sake of it
1: right she does also point out that any black contract needs to be authorized by a murder committee for lack of a
0: better (laughs) word our murder committee is very fair (laughs) it's very unbiased
1: and then she lets them use her pensive which is a harry potter joke you won't get it okay i was like what to look into her memories, and they get to actually see the the meeting where they decided to take the Grey King's contract. Yeah. This part was pretty
0: cool. Pretty groovy.
1: Because we get to see, again, this is the heart of the sanctum where all the mages are congregating and they're debating, and we get to learn a lot about them in this little short scene.
0: Yeah, I also thought it was another clever device To sort of show, you know, to get a way of showing that other perspective and learning about things and giving you some exposition in a way that doesn't seem heavy handed or just, you know, randomly dropping you into this place for half a chapter, you know, so I just thought it was pretty cleverly done.
1: So a lot of things were interesting here. We have a couple interactions between Patience and the falconer. So the memory starts with her walking into this meeting room, and the falconer is sitting there, and we learned that the mages are structured. Basically, you have four archmages, and then you have six or so speakers who are allowed to try and sway the room, and I thought this was really cool. So that the room they're in that they built is way underground, but the ceiling is spelled to look like a sky
0: mm-hmm. and like the mm- basement of the pentagon
1: okay i'll take your word for that
0: it's what it looks like
1: so it's spelled to I look like tell you a, how i know so it's spelled to look like a sky but the sky brightens when the sentiment in the room toward whoever is speaking is more positive so i just thought that was a wicked cool device it's pretty cool so we learned that the four Archmagi have, a t- have titles, and I thought this was interesting. The titles are Patience, Providence, Foresight, and Temperance. So for me, it's interesting that these are the qualities that they prize enough to be the titles of their leaders.
0: Yeah, I was thinking the same thing and wondering how much does that really reveal? Because to me, to me, that's an important point. Because those are all the sort of qualities you would think you would want to see in sort of a benign, uber-powerful dictator, right? Are these sort of ancient things that have been passed down that nobody really pays any attention to? Or is it something that they really try to adhere to? Which one is the one who—I forget which one it is—the one who is aligned with a falconer?
1: So foresight is— is the one of the four Archmagi who is the youngest and who's aligned with the Falconer. And this is sort of the young sort of splinter group
0: mm-hmm. that
1: really wants to speak against the older, more conservative members of the Archmagi. And there's a, we get to hear a couple speakers talking about this contract, and we learn that there's two guiding mandates for taking a black contract, and one of them is not causing any harm to themselves And the other one is not causing any detriment to the greater world that's going to affect Carthane.
0: So basically, let's make sure that we don't harm ourselves. And then let's also make sure that we We don't don't harm harm ourselves.
1: ourselves. (laughs) And I think probably taking out an entire kingdom would be out because as the these speakers start debating, we have Navigator, who is among the conservative bloc, saying, you know, we, we can't just kick morality out because we have these mandates. We also have to look at what we're being asked to do. And this is definitely the most extreme of these kind of contracts we've ever had. And then you have the Falconer on the other side saying, well, it's not really, you know, He's arguing that Camor wouldn't totally crumble because mm-hmm. there's probably one or two nobles out there who were sick or missing the gala for whatever yeah. reason, and, and, and he's and,
0: arguing against the slippery slope. He's like, exactly, is it okay to kill four, but it's not okay to kill four hundred. Where's the line?
1: Exactly, and as he argues, the sky's getting brighter and brighter, and
0: some you, weird perverted angels are shining down upon him. Ah, it's okay to kill 400.
1: <laughs> Something like that happens. Yeah. Yes. And another interesting thing that happens is as the Falconer gets to sort of like the crescendo of his speech, he throws out there that he's willing to take the contract. And at that moment, patience, as, as Jean is experiencing her memories, suppresses a surge of satisfaction. Or something like it. And we find out later that when the Falconer wants to talk to her and he's getting a couple jabs in there and they're, they're going back and forth with this mother-son conflict and she asks him not to go and she tells him that she's had a, a premonition that he's not going to come back and he scoffs at her, of course, and we know that she was right. So that's yeah. kind of an, of an interesting little tidbit there. So, whew, there's a lot to unpack in this chapter. We get all kinds of information. Outside of the memory, they all come back, and Locke asks patients why she and the Falconer don't get along. And it's really kind of heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, it is. So, yeah, so they, it was interesting to me in this section that Locke is like, I know we said not to get personal, but I'm going to ask you one of the most personal things I could ever ask you. And she's like, yeah, I'll allow it. Go ahead. You know? So that was, I'm not quite sure what that means yet, but anyway, so the story here goes that when, so Patience was married to a man who was ungifted. Now this casts a very interesting sort of element into the whole car thing in society, which I guess we'll get to see more in the upcoming chapters. But anyway, so she's married to somebody who's not a Bonds Magi, and they have a child, and then the husband dies, leaving her to raise the child by herself. And then because in the world of the Bonds Magi, knowing your true name, the first name that you know yourself by... If anybody else were to know that, it grants them power over you. So none of them go by their real names. They call them red names. They all have these, you know, nicknames like monkey pants that they go <laughs> they go by from the age of five, you know. And because she is a Bonds Magi and he also had the gift of being a Bonds Magi, but she was a mother raising him by herself, she ended up naming him and therefore knows his real name and when he became aware enough to realize what that actually meant he resented her and has never forgiven her for it
1: isn't that sad
0: it's sad yeah so
1: sad
0: it's sad but let me let me tell you what i think is sadder to me any mother no matter how strained the relationship is who would have a premonition that her son was going to die. And then upon learning that the chips have fallen in such a way as to confirm that premonition, is excited by it.
1: So it's interesting to look at that a little bit closer because I went back and read it again. Okay. And when the Falconer says... She says that the moment she had the premonition was the moment that he said, I'll take the contract. And uh, okay, All right. the words that were used to describe that were a feeling, something like satisfaction, but quickly suppressed. So I, I don't mm-hmm. know that she was excited so much as there was some kind of premonition that happened that Jean didn't know how to describe. Mm-hmm. We definitely see with patients this split Personality of the archmagi and the mother. And we definitely see the strained relationship between the two of them. Yeah, for sure. So it's interesting to see her tell the story of how much she loved this baby boy and how devastated she was at the death of her husband and how that was the only thing that kept her sane. So definitely a complicated character and one I'm really digging.
0: I'm glad that we sort of clarified. What that means, because we're trying to figure out who this person is and if we can trust her, because there's so many things in these stories that seem one way on the surface, but then you get you get deeper into, it and that's not what it is. It what I do have to say is from what I've from what I recall, and I could be wrong about this, but from what I recall, we rarely have an instance where a character, whether they're a character, a good character, bad character, you know, evil, good, whatever. Not that that's really. Not that anybody ever really clearly falls too sharply into that camp. But we don't see a lot of people just flat out lying. It's usually that there's more to the story that wasn't told. But anyway, we're trying to figure out if this character is somebody we can trust. And that relationship with her son would be a good indicator. Because if she is willing to or excited by or happy about her son's ultimate demise, then that gives you a real glimpse into what her what her morality is and is she gonna care at all about Locke and Jean?
1: Well, I think that we can probably safely say that she will care about Locke and Jean insofar as they will accomplish the purpose that she wants them to.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And that's this this five year game.
0: Yeah. Now the other thing that I question and I know this popped up, I think, in Chapter 2, you know, this whole five-year game thing. I sort of took it when I first read it as being something that more directly impacted their politics. And and as we get deeper into this chapter, we find out it's not really what it is at all. It's just like sort of like betting on hockey. You
1: no, know, Pretty much we find out that they, they kind of draw a lot.
0: Yeah, they don't even pick a side. They don't it's, even pick
1: a side. They don't care what the, what the politics are. Yeah,
0: yeah. So you get assigned the maple leaves.
1: But we, we do find that, okay, so there's two parties. There's also a conservative party and a progressive party. Mm-hmm. And they've drawn the short straw of having to represent the conservative party, which has been losing favor. And they're called the Deep Roots. But that's mm-hmm. what Locke and Jean are going to, to represent. And they have 100,000 ducats in six weeks to rig this election. But so Patience kind of starts to outline. There are
0: so many political jokes you could make right now.
1: <laughs> no corpses allowed.
0: I'm not, not going to make them, don't worry.
1: No kidnapping citizens. Yeah. But she also gets into, there's one more question before she she gets into that nitty gritty. And it's something that we have speculated about quite a bit. But it's nice to have it kind of answered because You know, in any magic system or any fantasy novel where you have magic users, there's got to be a a price for magic. Yeah. And generally speaking, the more powerful, the more wider variety of powers a magician has, the more cost there is to them. And we haven't seen that in this book. We haven't seen that balance. We have these really, really powerful mages. Who can you know talk to animals? They can control the weather. They can control people's brains. They, I mean, they can they can do a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's we haven't crazy. seen what the cost is yet.
0: But it's as, like a whole city of 18th level wizards.
1: It, it is. So as patience finally answers their last question, which is really, you no, know, really, why do you take the contracts? Yeah, for yeah. reals <laughs> this time.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So what it comes down to is another thing we've talked about is that they are afraid of whatever it is that killed or scared off the Eldrin, And the way she puts it, the people who founded her order, who were responsible for the destruction of Therimpel, who were the ones who went around and decided every mage has to be part of our order or we're going to kill you, weren't at it for for power or wanting to rule the other mages. They were afraid of the imprint that these works of magic were leaving. So when mages get together and do magic together for the same purpose it leaves a residue and apparently it's like
0: a tingle in the air it, and, it's
1: something like that and you can itching on your left elbow that's
0: right yeah.
1: so they decided you that it was too right risky tip. to start building you know 500 foot towers out of glass all over the place
0: yeah right because the last time it happened the eldren got killed or chased off or runoff Ain't or nobody whatever. want that
1: to happen again.
0: No, 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 no. Well, and don't we have, I mean, we're going way back to the beginning, so I could be wrong about this, but weren't there a handful of structures in Kamor that were elder glass structures that were destroyed?
1: Yes, there's the broken tower yeah. where all yeah. of the thieves hang out.
0: Okay, yeah, I thought so. Okay, so this thing that nobody's been able to do anything with by any quote modern means inside of this world, you know, to even be able to like mount things onto it. You know, you can't even can't even hang a picture, right? And these son of bitches like, you know, broke the tops off of towers, you know. So whatever that whatever that was was a bad mofo.
1: Right. So we see, you know, kind of the root of this schism between the two factions of Bonds Magi. You have the traditionalists who are want to stick to that not making waves, you know, and that's why they accept contracts because they explain that working towards diverging goals of like thousands of other people kind of dissipates the magic. And then you've got this newer faction who is like, basically, fuck it. <laughs> Let's just do it anyway.
0: There's one thing you have to think about if that really is your goal, right? Is to, is you don't want the same fate to befall you as what bef- befell the Eldrin, right? Is that the magical feats that you're talking about right now are like you know a chicken compared to a human, <laughs> like the Eldrin society was so much further along on their civilizational development, and the feats of magic that they would have they would have had to have been using would have been so tremendous that anything that's being done now is a a match light against the sun in comparison. So, I think I'm gonna I'm siding with the uh, with the progressives here. Really? Yeah.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Team Black Iris over yeah, there. Yeah,
0: Absolutely. I'm
1: Team Deep Roots. Why even risk it? Fuck with those crazy aliens. Come down in their spaceships and zap the hell out of us. We don't
0: even know that that's what happened.
1: We, something happened.
0: Something. We don't know what. So listen, you're never going to find out if you don't tap into the magics, yo. You got to push a little bit. If Theron Pell didn't draw them down, then any of this bullshit ain't nothing. These guys are all scared over nothing over there. Oh, it's on. are passing out wolf tickets.
1: <laughs> so the struggle is real between these two factions. And now in our living room <laughs> as well. But there's one more surprise that gets dropped on us at the end of this chapter.
0: Oh, yeah. So now they want to get into the questions about, okay, you need to tell us about the ins and outs of what it is you actually want us to do. We've talked about the history of blah, blah, What's the actual job, right? And so they start getting into, well, there's this party and there's that party and here's what you can do and here's what you can't do. Oh, and by the way, when they found out that we were hiring you two knuckleheads, the uh, the folks on the other side supporting the Black Irises decided they would try to find the only person who could thwart your incredible brilliance. And they hired Sabatha.
1: Dun, dun, dun.
0: And I read that and I went, no. You did, it
1: was awesome.
0: <laughs> no shit, that's incredible. Because, okay, to this date, we have not seen Sabatha other than in... In flashbacks in Locke's memory, all these books built up, and now this is the first way we're going to get introduced to her. Yep, is in opposition to that.
1: Yep,
0: bam. Now, here's the other thing that I have to question about that is does Sabathin know who she's working for? Don't know. Does she realize that she's working for the party that supports the Falconer who killed? Half her family.
1: I'd say, I don't know. Probably not. You know. I do know.
0: did you look at me like that? I. You know what's going on.
1: I do, and I can't wait for you to read it. It's good. It's good.
0: Hmm. I feel like she's been poisoned against them. Don't know. So what are your feelings about how Chapter 4 ends?
1: Oh, I dig it. I loved that that surprise at the end. I certainly, um, you know, in reading it, when, when I was reading it the first time, did not stop there. I was like, oh, hell yeah, we're going to meet <laughs> Sabatha. This is definitely a, a staying up all night book for me. So yeah, I like that twist. And I like, you know, in the beginning of the, of the podcast, you were talking about how in this section, we started with a, a contest between Locke and Sabatha and... Got to see their different styles and and how they ended in a draw, and now we're back at the end of this section, setting up for another contest between the two of them.
0: Yeah, and that and that's interesting to me. It's great the way, by the way, good job the way you kind of carved that out because we begin and end, you know, really sort of um, you know bookending uh, this section with those sort of contests, right? And so, what is that first contest? tell us about how this contest is going to play out, right? So if we see the way these guys have behaved in the past, it's that Sabatha is probably going to have a better plan than they're going to have. She's had more time. She's going to be more prepared. So that tells me that these knuckleheads are going to be up against it from the start at a huge disadvantage from the start. But we also know that nobody in the world can improvise or just sort of find luck when the chips are down like Locke Lamora can. So, I think that's going to play out the same sort of way. But the way it ultimately ended, or one of the critical pieces in the way that initial game ended there in Kamor was that Sabatha thought that Locke was really in trouble and she stopped the game. I don't think that's going to happen this time.
1: Interesting. I think
0: that's where we're going to see a change is in that section. All right, so I don't remember where it was, but there's some point in there where she alludes to the idea that they've been watching them for a long time. Okay. And I don't think this is true, but it caused me to speculate, is it possible that the good fortune – that Locke has been experiencing isn't because of the crooked warden, but was instead because patients as a counter to the Falcon are trying to achieve those goals or some of the bonds of Magi were actually intervening on his behalf.
1: That's interesting. That's a very interesting point. I don't know.
0: I don't think that's the case, but it just caused me to think maybe there's something like that or maybe the power that's behind that is somehow pushing for lock. it wouldn't, it all surprise me if, you know, we get further into this series and we find out that there are powers, gods and things of that nature in this world, but it's not really the 13, the way it's delineated.
1: That's a good question.
0: Anyway, that was just something I was thinking about. So ready for predictions?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: All right. So here we go. So at the end of the last section, right before we started this section, patients said, I can guarantee you that what you experience will be the worst thing that ever happens to you. And my prediction is that this trip to go with the Bonds Magi will not be the worst thing that's ever happened to them.
1: (laughs) That's probably a pretty safe prediction. Yeah, because... That's your safe one? Yeah,
0: because, you know, unless... There's not enough family members left to die. Right. <laughs> to equal what happened to them in Kamor. So I'm going to go with that one. I also feel like Jean is going to get captured, horribly tortured, and Locke is going to have to face a choice about whether or not to sacrifice him or kill him out of mercy or find a way to overcome it at greater risk to jean
1: it's a good prediction too
0: so jean's going to be put in a situation like sabatha was in that interlude but it'll be real mm. i also think that chains is going to get beheaded by ill Payne. <laughs> and i think that there's nobody in this book who's going to get a blowjob at any point <laughs> so, the other thing I've gone back and forth on is, is Patience a false facer? Is she lying? Are these memories false? Because if she can put you in her memory, she could just as easily create. We know they can, they can make illusions.
1: That's a tough road to go down.
0: Yeah. So, you know, what? how much can we trust what she says? So... I'm deciding to go down the road that says that what she is telling them is truthful. Now, I sort of feel like it might be a little bit like the A.S. trick of she's not lying, but that doesn't mean that she's really telling them everything or that she, you know, isn't truthfully telling them things in ways that's deliberately manipulative. Um, so I don't really have an answer there, but I do not think that she is lying. All right. So those are my tr- predictions. I also No, that's it. <laughs> that's it. I want to get deeper into Sabbath and make some predictions on what Sabbath is going to be like to deal with, but I just really don't know other than I you know what I said earlier that I think she's going to outplan them. And outsmart them at every at every turn. At least in the beginning of the book. Would you like to hear some interactions from our listeners?
1: Yeah, let's do shout
0: outs. Awesome. All right. So on Twitter, Ken Harrelson, who is at Angry Puppy Films, says, show nuff."
1: <laughs> nice.
0: Yeah. So Ian James Crone and Ian Crone says Patience should obviously be played by Diane Lane.
1: Ooh, that's a good one. Oh, I can see that.
0: I'm embarrassed to say I don't know who Diane Lane is.
1: Okay, so she was in that movie where she goes to Provence and buys a house because her husband left her. She rides around on a a Vespa.
0: Sounds familiar. Or is that just one of your sisters?
1: could be one of my sisters and also Diane Lee
0: okay Uh, so Ian also says I have to agree with the Duke the unnamed 13th is not going to be pleased with Locke working for the Bonds Magi the rich remember and rich means power
1: that's true and the Bonds Magi are also rich
0: that's they're very rich yeah so I was listening to the last podcast that we went through and my insistence that you know Working for the Bonds Magi was going to be this terribly negative thing. And as I'm listening to it and I'm listening to your arguments, I'm like, I don't have a leg to stand on. Like, (laughs) there's just like, there's no basis for what I'm, you know, for what I'm bringing to the table. And everything you said made absolute logical, perfect sense. And I was like, I'm wrong. Definitely wrong. I mean, I
1: have read the book before.
0: But I have Ian on my side, and now he has strengthened me in my conviction <laughs> that I am right. <laughs> and the Crooked Warden's going to say, nuh uh uh none of that. None of that. Adam at LFC, Adam88185 posted on our Twitter the, uh, the meme where it's the, the couple that are walking and the one girl in the red dress walks by. And the boyfriends turn around and look at her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the current girlfriend says, all the books I'm supposed to be reading. And the girl who's walking past says, uh, King Killer Chronicle reread.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I thought that was funny.
1: I know them feels.
0: Am I the only one who thinks that the girl he's already with is actually more attractive than the girl he's looking at?
1: You're talking about the actual meme? Yeah. I feel like they look exactly the same.
0: They do look very similar. They do look very similar. So on Facebook, Daryl Mansell, Seed at Seed Delicious on Paprika says, "I'm taking your comments on Lost <laughs> as a <laughs> blatant a disrespect. It is a mm-hmm. wonderful show.
1: You know, you you really get irate when we talk about Lost." Because you put so much time into it and then you hated the ending so much.
0: Well, I put time into it until towards the end of the second season, and then I was like, Nope.
1: But I still I'm made out. you watch it with me.
0: I watched like the last season. We, I watched the first two seasons and the last season.
1: I feel like you sat through quite a bit of it with me. That could make We ma- only okay. had one T V at the time. <laughs> so you you were kind of stuck.
0: <laughs> May have been doing other things at the
1: we time. We used to be a one TV family. It, it led to a lot of TV being watched that one of us didn't want to watch. But I feel like you sat there and as each season went by, you were just like, Ugh. and I <laughs> wouldn't let you talk during it because come on, man.
0: No, that is rude to have people.
1: Why you got to ruin it?
0: Ruin it for you, you know? So I get that.
1: And then at the end, you were just like, uh,
0: I told you they had no idea what they were doing.
1: <laughs> I mean, I for me, I I dug it enough. Like I went there with them. It was it was all good.
0: They had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> anyway, moving on, moving on. That's funny. So, Daryl also posted what has been one of the best things to happen to me in the last <laughs> several weeks. <laughs> He posted the the picture of Gordo the Elder.
1: That's definitely going to be our new um, our, our mascot. Oh,
0: my goodness. That's, I, I mean, this is exactly what was going through my head. Yeah. <laughs> and then Eric on the Facebook group page, uh, I forget what the exact word for this is, but he made this like the tri-colored poster like you uh-huh. would see like Che Guevara on. You know, and it said the words chillax at the bottom. Uh-huh. And I was oh my God, it's just
1: <laughs> It's pretty great.
0: I mean, you guys are great. That's that's the best. So we also had a comment on Facebook from Laura Weston and she said, This is a little bit of a long one, I'm gonna but I'm gonna read it. She said, Hey, I found your podcast because I was reading Name of the Wind and I hate quoth. I was looking for now, hold on, calm down. <laughs> Give <laughs> I hear you in podcast land. Chill. Listen, with the words of our immortal mascot, Chillax. Chillax. (laughs) I was looking for a podcast talking about the book to see if anyone agreed you didn't, but I loved your discussion anyway. While you didn't change my mind on him, you did make me appreciate the book on other levels that I had missed due to my single-minded dislike of quotes, so thanks. Also, I don't think I'm doing the podcast right. Instead of reading Wise Man's Fear, I just listened to you guys talk about it. Using you 2 as a filter made Quoth much more bearable. Then I just got lazy. I like Locke, but after the prologue, I just gave up and listened to you guys describe the books to me.
1: <laughs> that's amazing.
0: <laughs> Listen, if that's, how, if that's how you want to do it. More power to you. Absolutely. You know what you want to invest your time in. <laughs> and it's in our podcast, and that's awesome
1: i love it that's great like we're like the audible books but more summarizing and dick jokes dick
0: jokes yeah exactly that's what we're here for so da babalina says oh and can i just say yay we're back on a boat
1: (laughs) right very little boat talk i feel like there was a lot of restraint there
0: Yes, there was a good thread uh, on our Facebook group page between uh, Dababalina and Theo going back and forth about this section. There always is. There always is, yeah. And and I couldn't even begin to summarize it, but get in there. Big discussion on was Caldris poisoned last time, which, well, he was poisoned, but did he die because of a lack of antidote or did he die because of a heart attack? So my prediction was that he was not given the antidote. It's very clear, given the way this book opens up, that that is not the case. He died of a heart attack.
1: Right. The Who knows what whether the poison contributed to that. He was yeah. obviously a gentleman in poor health. Uh, may have hit him a little harder. But, yeah, if you are not a member of the closed Facebook group page, get on that. We have some great discussions uh, among listeners there. Really good content.
0: Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So if you go, I
1: think if you go on Facebook, you search the Duke and Duchess podcast group.
0: Correct. Yeah, it's there's different
1: just from our our kind of open
0: podcast podcast page, page on yeah, there. Yeah, it's a little weird because you you can't just like link somebody directly to it. You have to kind of go looking for it, and I have to you have to ask to join, and then I have to add you. So they don't make it easy on Facebook.
1: We got to keep out really weird groupies and spam bots okay
0: pretty much just the spam bots weird groupies just. are allowed
1: <laughs> Oh, we're kidding we love you weird groupies
0: we're all the weird groupies we can get so just love us all right so <laughs> we have an extra we have another review on itunes and this is from andy keithley and he says one of my main podcast five stars I've been reading and listening along with the Duke and Duchess since Name of the Wind, and I look forward to each week's analysis and commentary. It's both smart and funny. Okay. Sometimes we might be smart. Sometimes we might be funny, but never both at the same time. (laughs) We just don't have that kind of chops. (laughs) And I recommend uh, D&D to any reader of the fantasy genre. So, thank you, Andy Keithley. Thank you. Andy also has a very good uh, podcast um, guitar, guitar cast, which if which you mentioned
1: before, yes,
0: which we mentioned before, if you enjoy music, uh, because it's not all about guitars and guitars specifically, it's about music in general. So there's some really good stuff on there. So check that out as well. If that's up your alley, so to speak. So that is all I have. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Yeah, they do. They have to. That's how every podcast ends.